Jeff, I don't want to, you, you want me to plan to call or reach out a dozen times over the next, you know, six to eight weeks. Yeah. Well, aren't I going to be considered a pest? Well, no. Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, folks, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I am grateful to have Jeff Bajorek of jeffbajorek.com. Jeff is a sales trainer and consultant of sales teams and sales individuals. He's also the creator of Rethink the Way You Sell. Jeff, welcome to the show, man. Good to be here, Mark. Do you play golf, Mark? I do. Have you had just glorious late fall or early fall weather there? So I don't like play a lot. Here? So so I played as a kid uh, growing yeah. up. I grew up across the street from a golf course. So I, I, I joked that I peaked at... Um, at 12. Um, but I, I do play, uh, I actually love fall golf more than anything. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't play a lot because of the kids, you know, sure. so they've, they've kind of taken away my, my passion for golf, which I don't really have too much of a passion anymore okay. for it. But I do say, you know, once my youngest graduates high school, I'll get back into it. But this summer, interestingly enough, one of them was really interested and we went out for nine holes a bunch of times. And I was like, good, yeah. you know, cause I tried as a, when they were little, I, I joined a club. I'm like, they're going to be golfers and this is going to be great. It yeah. was some ter ter terrible experiences, but you know, nonetheless, now they're coming and coming to me with it. So it's a lot cool. different. And it's funny cause I started very young. So, you know, it's pretty natural and I'm not saying I'm great at the game, but I'm certainly a lot better than a beginner kid who's like, mm -hmm. whoa, dad, what the, how did you wait? What, you know, where were you hiding this from us? You know, my son got mad at me. He was frustrated. He put the game down. And the thing that he was so frustrated by as a eight-year-old at the time was that he couldn't hit it as far as me. Yep. And he might be a little competitive. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it's like, dude, you're, at the same time, he didn't realize he was a kid. The second time he ever took a swing at a golf at a golf ball, he got it airborne. Nice. And I'm like, but you got it. And he just doesn't want anything to do with it right now. And he's 11 and a half. And, you know, I'm, I keep asking. We'll see. Um, but, you know, he's a kid who wants to dabble in some things, dabbles in a lot of things, but doesn't ever really follow through with much. And we'll see if I can get him to pick it up. But it's such a great game for so many reasons. Um. And if you have a natural talent, I mean, it's, you know, seven, eight years old, I could just take him out to the range, put him right next to me, not have to worry about him at all. And he would, he's like, dad, you got any teas? Like, nice. yeah. So I hand him just a handful of teas. He lines them all up, puts a ball on top of them, just rapid fire, like tiger on the range. And I'm like, who taught you how to do this? Like, where did you, it's just the, this intuition that comes to him. So I, I've Isn't still, I still got hope, but there's so much, soon. there's so much in that, in, in that alone, right? The, the, the fact that he's upset that he can't hit it as far as you My my oldest was the same way. And it's like, God, kid, you, you got to earn it. Like you can't cut corners. Like you, you're not, you know, you can't just jump to the front of the line. Like you got to right. work. 
through this, right? And it's right. it's like that with sales. And also, you know, what you were what you were saying about, you know, he's just not into it. It's like you gotta bring the game to him, or he's gotta come to the game, or you gotta meet them where mm-hmm. they're at, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of these days we may just do a family outing up to top golf or something where mm. it's totally light and fun and there's no big deal and eat the chicken tenders, you know, like we just let's, let's have fun with this, which is kind of the way I was introduced to bowling, you know, growing up. And I grew up in a family of bowlers. My parents met bowlers. My parents met bowling because their parents, you know, knew each other from bowling. And so I've got all the trophies. It's funny. <laughs> My mom gave me like three boxes of like all my old trophies. She's like, I don't want these in my house anymore. I'm like, well, I don't blame you, but now I have them in my house. <laughs> yeah, now what? That was that was not my problem for a long time. And um, I don't know what to do with them. And so it's like, okay, I don't need them. I forget that I have them. It's not like I have this, this uh, affinity to keep these memories, but I need to somehow catalog these. And all this other stuff that my mom saved so that my kids and their kids and their kids might know something about their great grandfather. Right. right? And, um, it, but it, I, that was quite a diversion right there from bowling and, and golf. But I just remember we would go and it was, oh, okay, there's pizza and French fries and just, you know, don't eat with your bowling hand. Right. And we right. just, it was just something we did for fun. And my brothers and I got pretty good at it. Um, my grandpa had, he bowled three in his career, bowled three 279s. Wow. And those, and 279 is nine straight strikes, missing a strike in the 10th frame, but then hitting a spare and then and, and hitting a strike. So like, it's, it's like he was just a board essentially off, you know, from throwing a 300. My uncle, his son has two 300, 300 games. So wow. like, it's kind of in our family, but we were introduced to it the same way. It was just, Hey, it's fun. Let's go do this. And I, I know the smell of a bowling alley, like the back of my hand, like it just, it's still something that uh, it's easily approachable. I think golf is getting that way. It is. And it wasn't necessarily when we were kids, right? It was the elitist and it was Mm -hmm. like that exclusive uh, vibe to it that kept people from, and it was slow, right? Which is unfortunately what's happening to baseball too, but it was slow for kids. But if I could encourage anything for you and your son is to find him a friend that he actually cares about that likes it, right? Because then the competition gets the blood flowing and then you're off. And then it's like, dad, I want to get better. Dad, dad, when are we going? Dad, dad. And then you get what you want, which is yeah. that time. Right. That's a good point. I uh, hadn't, hadn't appreciated, hadn't thought of that approach yet. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So bring a friend and then he'll yes. realize how good he is too. Well, there's that, there's that we had him in at our club. We had him in some junior golf, some group golf lessons. Um, he did the drive chip and putt thing yeah. one year. Um, actually, I mean, did really, really well because he sunk a putt. Wow. I mean, he just it buries this six footer right in the heart and didn't realize, I, you know, he was, I think, seven or eight at the time. And uh, for a second there, we thought he was moving on and he got beat out and ended up finishing fifth or seventh or something. But um, he did not like the kids. Really? That was one of the issues. He did not like the kids. And, you know, we like to, someone told me this. Um, at the club I belong to, 
I, I didn't grow up in a club by any yeah. means. I just really like to play golf. I love the course. It's the closest one to my house, the access, the speed, the, I mean, and there's some good people, but I wouldn't call us certainly country club type folks. Right. And, um, and I both, I have two pretty shy introverted kids. They're a lot of fun when they open up, but they're, they're kind of quiet. And if you're not in the in crowd, you kind of feel like you're in the out. And, mm. uh, there was a lot of that for him and he didn't like some of the entitlement and some of the kids were cheating and things like, Oh boy, dad, this is supposed to be a gentleman's game. Mm. (laughs) You're exactly right. And I don't think he liked it enough. And I think his competition and his, um, just his, just a little bit of anxiety about it. And just the, the overall surrounds, I don't think he had a buddy in that crowd. And, um, he's not the thickest. He doesn't have the thickest of skin. He's pretty sensitive. Yeah. And not in a way that I want to beat that out of him, but certainly in a way he's going to need to get a little tougher as he gets older. And he is, but uh, yeah, just, it wasn't for him. And as much as I, as much as they need a nudge, you, I, I can't force them. No, well, you know, it's funny. So one of the few teams that I didn't coach of my kids as they were growing up was a, uh, was one of the summer baseball teams for my oldest. And I used to sit in the back of a pickup truck with a a friend whose son was on the team as well. And we used to sit back in center field and really enjoy the ability to simply watch and enjoy. And we would talk about this a lot, right? Like how hard do you push your kid? And he used to use the analogy of a velvet glove. And I always love that. And I take that with me because you can visualize that you're not going to push the kid down face first into the mud. You're going to, you're going to gently guide in the right direction, but it's still a push. It's still a push, but it's not a push down, right? Right. Smash them and make them not want to do what you're, you're hoping they'll do. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to find that balance. I'm, I'm wondering if that's the same in your sales training. Um, I use the velvet hammer approach. <laughs> nice. So it's just, it's just, it's, it's a hammer, but it's very soft. You know, it's there, but it doesn't hurt. And that's a, a phrase that I stole from one of my mentors. And I don't know who he stole it from, but he'll charge me royalties. Um, <laughs> but it's the, it it's, you know, the velvet hammer. Um, and I think when you recognize that the hammer brings value, like that's the key, right? And one of the things that I talk about with my clients all the time, Jeff, I don't want to, you you want me to plan to call or reach out a dozen times over the next, you know, six to eight weeks? Yeah. Well, aren't I going to be considered a pest? Well, no, not if the messaging, not if you're reaching out with some kind of value, not if you're showing the, your prospect what's in their best interest, you know, like if you just pick up the phone, and say, are you ready to buy yet? If you're Bart Simpson in the backseat of the car, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like they're going to block your number. No question. But if you're going to provide some value, provide some thoughtful content, provide some provocation, some, some thoughtful questions, like questions. That I, I prospect using questions and I train people using questions because it's like, make them think it separates you. It differentiates you. It demonstrates your expertise. And if you ask enough questions that deserve answers and you don't get answers right away, it's like that creates a lot of tension. 
Because Mark, if I reach out to you and I ask you a question, you, you, you're like, all right, Jeff, you get my voicemail, you read my email, whatever it is. Well, that's a really good question. I don't have time right now. I'm not in a buying window right now. I'm I, not now. And I never heard from this guy before. He's going to go away anyway. So it's not important to me right now. I'm just going to wait until the third time when I know it's the last time and then we're on. So then you hear from me a fourth time. You hear from me a fifth time. You hear from me a sixth time. And every time it's like, hey, have you thought about this? How have you handled this? Hey, you know, I work with a lot of, you know, uh, title attorneys like you, Mark. And like, they're all struggling with this. How have you managed to overcome it? I'll tell you what, by the sixth, seventh, eighth time you get a question from me, one, you know, I'm not going away by now. Right. Two, particularly if I've sent you an email, I've called you on the phone, I've connected with you on social media. Maybe I sent you a handwritten note, maybe, you know, whatever, maybe I'm in town and I stopped by and I left a, a industry publication article that justifies the conversation I want to have something like that. You know, I'm not going away. You, I've got you professionally surrounded. Like there's nowhere for you to hide. <laughs> and I mean, not in a creepy way, right? Yeah. Like people say, well, won't that be creepy? Like, if you don't want to be creepy, don't be creepy. That's pretty simple. Like if, if you're even thinking about that question, then your boundaries are pretty good. Just don't be creepy. You're going to be fine. But then it's like, I'll be damned if this guy hasn't asked me like eight really good questions that I just haven't gotten around to answer yet. This conversation will be worth having. All right. And the whole while I'm asking for this 15 minute meeting, this 20 minute meeting, I just want to talk about this subject that I know you are facing in some way or shape or form. We'll leave my product, my solution on the table. I know you're facing this because everybody like you faces this. Can we talk about this? And if I'm promising to bring you insights, promising to trade value for your time, you're going to take that meeting more often than not. You would think so. You would think so. And I, and I like how you you frame the, okay, he's going to call me, he's going to email me, and then he's going to do something for the third time, and then he's gone. And I don't have oh, to yeah. worry about him anymore. How often has that happened? Um, I'm blanking on the stats right now. It's something like 90 plus percent of the time, 90 plus percent salespeople or 90 plus percent of the salespeople give up after two or three attempts. I think it's 92% is the last study I saw. Wow. Um, so if you persist beyond that, you're, you're good. And I saw another stat from the same paper or the same articles, blog article, that 60% based on this research, 60 plus percent of the sales that are eventually made, contact was established after the fifth attempt. Yeah. Yeah. So you have this dichotomy here where 8% of the salespeople are making 60 plus percent of the sales. That's right. Which sounds about right. It's not totally Pareto, but you know, it's, it's like, there's a small amount of people making a lot of the sales because they're willing to be persistent. If you persist that long and you're not valuable, it's not like they're, they're picking up the, the phone and it's not like people are picking up the phone, just making you, hoping you go away. Like if I pick up the phone and tell you to take me off your list, that's not the response you're looking for, no. <laughs> right? No. It counts as a response, but it's not the response you're looking for. So the people who understand the value that they bring, 
the people who are willing because they believe so much in the value that they create, provide, uh, um, you know, help uh, achieve, they're the ones winning. And that has always been the case. And as we go into this, you can call it a period or a period of uh, economic uncertainty. Dude, it's a recession. It has been a recession for a while. When it starts feeling like a recession, it's a recession. I don't need an academic to tell me that people don't want to spend money right now. That part doesn't matter. Right. Right. And you're seeing it particularly in the housing market that it, it doesn't feel like it did in 2008, 2009, because the conditions leading up to it were completely different. But my wife and I have been paying attention to the market because we wanted to move into a place, a, a, a bigger house in the um, in the same community. Like, thanks, pandemic, for reminding us how small our confines yeah. are. But we're like, there's no way these houses are worth this much. There's just no way. And then they kept going up and kept going up and kept going up. And it's like, you know, we're going to sit back. We're going to wait. There's got to be a correction coming. Any logically thinking person would would see that. And now it's starting to. And now rates are jumping. So you have this thing where rates are going up for other reasons. The market has been high for a while. There's still this weird thing where there's like no inventory. Mm. And it just all feels weird. And that's my outsider's like non, you know, real estate professional kind of point of view. I'm, I'm seeing you nod here a little bit. So I feel like you're either really, really polite or I'm saying something smart. But like when you just look at all this, this stuff, we, this period of economic uncertainty, the people who are going to continue to win are the ones who have alignment between what they sell, who they sell it to, how they sell it and why. And that alignment underscores and creates your belief to make the extra call, to be so persistent that you are sure that they have heard you before you're willing to move on, to, to make sure that you didn't just get lost in the ether, to, you know, to, you're, you're so passionate about what you do that you feel a responsibility to give everybody an opportunity to get your help. Rather than, I'm going to try to make a sale here, it's like, I'm going to help this person in a way that they're not even aware of. And if they tell me that they don't want, if they hear me out and they say, you know what, we're just not doing that. We see the method to your madness. Like, I appreciate that. You have some good ideas. You gave me some things to think about. We're not in a place to do it right now. Um, this isn't even on our radar. There's too many pro uh, projects in front of it. Um, or even like, I see that, but I like to, I'd like to solve this problem this other way better. I'm so good with that. Like that's the rejection. That is rejection. I will take that rejection all day. My issue is not with being rejected. My issue is when you don't know how much I can help you, please tell me you've got another plan, but tell me something. It, that's, that's what leads to that persistence. And that's why I think the very best salespeople are willing to be um, so thorough in their outreach. Well, it's it's purposeful, right? It's it's an yes. obligation that I have to share this with people. I'm not selling. I'm not keeping track of the numbers. I need to get up at the top of the mountain and shout down and help everybody. There's such yeah. a difference there. How do you how do you instill that in your learners and the folks that you 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 work with? There's a um, there's an exercise I do called "What Is Your Why." And I, I learned it from Jeffrey Gittimer years ago. 
um, Jeffrey Gittimer, the king of sales. Uh, he called himself that, but no one's argued with him. <laughs> um, and, you know, we he and I worked together um, in some capacity. I did some work with him and his firm and was a, a, he was something of a mentor to me. He wrote the Little Red Book of Selling and the Sales Bible, which are two all-time classics. And those were the first two books that I read on sales that were like, all right, I get this. I think I'm understanding this. This was early in my career. Cool. But I learned this this exercise. And it's four questions. Then I added a fifth. Why do you believe in the company you work for? Why do you believe in what you sell? Why do you believe in yourself? Why do you believe your customer is better off for buying from you? And then the fifth one I added is why do your best customers buy from you? I added the question, but he taught me that lesson. So I, I give a little bit of credit. I've modified it to make it my own, but inspiration goes to to Gittermer. And you just ask people to answer those questions and I'll get sales teams in a room and I'll say, okay, let's talk about this. And what's interesting is the collective energy in that room elevates every time people share their answers. They realize mm -hmm. they have a lot in common with one another, which isn't always apparent on some teams. Some teams are very tightly knit. Others, it's like, wow, okay. I didn't realize we had so much in common. Um, so you realize what you have in common. You realize that you're answer, answering questions from your heart. These are personal answers, right? But you're reminding yourself of all the good that company does. You're, you're reminding yourself of why you choose to work for that company. And if you're self-employed, then it's really doubling down on that choice to bet on yourself. But you are reminding yourself of all the reasons that you choose to be where you are. When you answer in terms of why you believe in yourself, that's really important. We don't answer that question for ourselves often enough. That's something should be answered right. really regularly, um, daily if you need it, but weekly at least. And when you think about why your customers are better off, this immediately goes to differentiation. Yeah. And if you cannot differentiate, you cannot sell. You need to be able to separate what you do and how you do it from what your competitors in the space are doing. But but Jeff, I'm in a commodity business. How do I do that? I could I could lower my price. You could. Um but <laughs> you could <laughs> commodities. So I, I love this. I'm I'm so glad you even changed your voice a little bit. Like you got well, a little it's not me saying more. that. It's definitely not me saying uh, that. <laughs> um commodities don't require salespeople. Commodities are traded. Pork is a commodity. Lettuce is a commodity. Eggs are a commodity and hell eggs differentiate themselves. You have farm raised, you have pasture raised, you have free range, you have organic, you have whatever, but no one sells a commodity because if you have a sales position, your job, literally the reason they pay you is to help customers justify the difference between the lowest price and your price. And if you cannot differentiate by any other features, and by, by the way, most times, and particularly going into this recession, the biggest differentiator is often going to be the sales rep. It's going to be the professionalism they carry themselves with. It is going to be the way they persist, if, like we talked about. It's going to be the way they build rapport. And I don't mean like you go buy drinks and you buy a round of golf and so you kind of like win a fake single-serving friend. It's like... Are you justifying that you are someone worth talking to? You have something worth talking about every time. That's a high bar to clear, but it's the bar. To... When you find a way to separate yourself, differentiate yourself, 
now you can start to dictate the terms of the buying motives, the terms of the deal, like what they're going to accomplish. And I don't, I want to retract my statement of dictate those terms. You get to influence those terms. Right. Dictate gets, dick gets taken out of context. It's really the same thing in this context, but I'd like the, the, uh, the record to state that I amended my statement. Yeah. Well, you control um, <laughs> the process, right? You get to it, guide it. Yeah. If you're, if you're only selling on price, then that's a race to the bottom. Right. And the only thing worse than winning the race to the bottom is finishing second. Because <laughs> then you show them exactly how little you value your solution. You show them how low you were willing to go. And then it wasn't even good enough. Ugh. It wasn't low enough. Now you've reduced yourself to nothing. And that is just the absolute worst. So I just choose not to enter. Those people that want to put me into an RFP, if I can't write the RFP, I'm not participating. You know, oh, you'd like me to you'd, you'd like me to participate in this RFP? Okay, can we talk about what you're putting out there for a proposal? Can I help you understand what you should be looking for here? Because I've worked with so many people like you, and and I, I've seen kind of between the lines of code and the matrix here, and I know you're asking for this, but you're really hoping to you know get this and whatever. And if if they're willing to that kind of discussion. Well, then, Mark, that sounds an awful lot like a sales call. And I'm happy to let other teams play by my rules. I'm right. probably going to win that RFP, which because it's not really it's only an RFP for everybody else. <laughs> right. Oh, I love that. But like if you're going to boil me down to price, I remember in um, when I was selling medical devices and we had some stuff that was thought of as more of a commodity on the back end of our catalog, where we said we had, whereas we had some real strong differentiation points in the front of the catalog. And I remember we were in a reverse auction, a real time reverse auction. And I remember this auction closed at five o'clock on a Friday. And I was on the phone, old school, like our Blackberries were somehow synced together with my regional manager and the VP. And I'm like, all right, guys, here we got these last few products here. We're holding firm on these. We're going to win these these aren't really up for auction. This business is safe, but any of this other stuff, I said, go as low as you're comfortable going. I don't care if we lose it. And I don't care if you put in a bid that I don't like, because you just tell me as low as you're comfortable going, we're going to, we're in and then we're out. I'm not playing this game. And we actually won a couple of products and it was pretty cool. But what happened was a year later, um, we were no longer profitable on those products. Right. And they wanted us to lower our price. And I was like, you know what? If you're telling me that you're willing to sell at this rate, I'm happy to take the commission on that, right. <laughs> but I'm not going to fight for this business because they don't care about what we care about. And that's the whole thing. But when you, when you reduce the, the sales process to price, they don't care about what you care about. The prospect doesn't care about what you care about. You go back to that. What is your why exercise? No one says they pick this company or they believe in this solution because they sell for the cheapest. Right. And if they do, those aren't the kind of salespeople I want on my team because they have no belief in the value that goes beyond the price. And you want to be on a mission to save people money? Like, okay, there are places you can go and do that. But again, if it just comes down to money, you don't, the commodities don't need salespeople. So, I get that you want to serve people. Every once in a while, you have a game-changing technology that will enable people to sell or to save some money. 
you know, automating a lot of processes with software, saving manpower, that's going to cut some, that's going to cut some costs. It's, it's not a problem when you have something that will enable cost cutting, but when your sole mission is to, I'm going to take something they're already buying and I'm going to sell it cheaper. That sounds like an engineering job, not a sales job. All mm. due respect to engineers. I don't have a problem with that. We need better solutions for a lot of things, but um, if you don't believe enough in what you sell to charge extra for it, what are you doing? Right. Well, it's in, that value. It's that value prop, right? Yeah. Like how do you deliver value in a, in a competitive marketplace? What, what are some of the, the client base that you work with on a regular basis? Name them. them. Really? Um, I really did. You know, it's funny. I came out of medical devices Okay. and I left the medical device industry on purpose. Like I, I just didn't, I, the writing was on the wall. I didn't like the trend, the company I had the, the best job I'd ever had. I was really happy there, but they had shifted focus and it just wasn't going to be a good position for me anymore. There was no room for me to move up. It, it was, it, my time here was great. It's time for yeah. me to move on. And then I started my training and consulting business. Um, so but I wanted to leave that industry. So a lot of people are like, why don't you stay in medical? Why don't you stay in medical? I was like, the same reasons that I wanted to leave are happening right now. And that's why I believe there is a cap on the amount of help that I can provide. Mm. Right. I want to come in. I want to help these. And I can help you brush up your fundamentals and I can help you be a little bit more effective. It's not that I can't help. It's that the big 800 pound gorilla elephant in the room, um, the industry's moving in, in a way that is not befitting salespeople. Right. So do I want to work for a big conglomerate that's just going to swallow everybody up? It's going to be the most boring job in the world, but it'll be really stable. Or do I want to work for these startups who are just trying to make a dent and hopefully get swallowed up by the big behemoths? And I didn't have the risk tolerance for that. And I, I need to be more stimulated than bored. Right. So I got out and that actually, and when I had a hard time finding a position in other industries because I didn't have the you know, the, the five to seven years relevant industry experience, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. So I pursued clients in other industries. So I've worked in FinTech, I've worked in hotels and hospitality. I've got a client now um, that is in the salon industry and in, in the beauty industry. Um, geez, there's, there are a lot. I did, um, uh, manufacturing, um, motion control systems. Um, I've sold to firms that sell training. Uh, I've done stuff in real estate. I've done stuff in insurance. I, I always feel bad that I'm forgetting some, oh, there's not um, uh, sustainable and flexible packaging. Like I love working with people who are really proud of the work they do and have something to show for it. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you're selling. I think- almost every salespeople or almost every salesperson has the same issues. They don't know how to create new opportunities for themselves or actually what's most likely is they know how to, but they don't feel good about how they've been taught. Got it. Um, they don't manage their sales process effectively because they don't understand the whole sales process. You know, so much of selling is not about creating urgency in your prospect, but it's about not slowing the process down. You know, right. you can't make anybody buy faster than they want to buy, but you can really avoid slowing the process down. And if you don't know what to ask for, you're not going to ask. And that is one of the biggest reasons, I think, that 
you know, depending on which which study you look at, it's anywhere from like 50 to 80% of salespeople do not ask for next steps in a sales call. Mm. And I think a big portion of that is because they don't know what to ask for. And that's just because they didn't think ahead of the call. And so going back to where people are stuck, they don't feel good about prospecting. They don't know how to advance uh, their own pipeline and their own deals. Um, and a big thing in a lot of industries is I've got accounts to manage. I don't want to leave them alone. But I know I have to find new business, but I'd rather stay here and hang out with my favorite people who make me feel good every time I see them. And yeah, they're going to grow a couple of percentage points. They're going to grow enough for me not to get fired most times, but they're not really going to help me grow the business. And then that puts managers in a bad spot because they don't want to fire their, their rep and have that business go with them. But at the same time, their performance relies on growth. Like the whole thing is so dysfunctional because people make a lot of assumptions and they don't feel good about the answers to those, those questions. So I don't care what industry you're in. I can help you feel better about prospecting because you don't have to be the icky, gross, you know, smarmy, slimy salesperson. You know, when you have that alignment and you feel good about what it is that you sell, when you believe in what you do, when you believe enough that you can find your own way to do it, and I don't mean invent your own way to sell, but it's like, look, here's what has to happen. You need to put yourself in front of strangers. If you don't, if you despise using the phone, like there are other ways to do it. If you despise using email or social media, well, the phone and knocking on doors works too. Like there is a way for, I believe, anybody on this planet to introduce themselves to people they can help. So long as they believe enough in what they do and they believe enough in themselves to find their own way to do it. And so I'm industry agnostic as it relates to that. Um, I do tend to stay away from some early stage startups because I, in, well, really most startups, because I think the startups that are so late stage that I like working with them, a lot of times they're not really startups anymore. They're been, they've been profitable for years, but I think that, um, for a lot of startups and not all of them, but for a lot of startups, their priorities are incorrect. They're out of alignment. They're so worried about speed that they forget about doing it right. Mm. I want, I work with people who want to get it right. And there are a lot of ways to do it right. There's not a single way, but when you're so worried about scaling this and that, and the other thing that you don't, it's really hard to build a sustainable, you know, structure on a bad foundation. If your foundation isn't there, I don't like that, but how about the seller doers, right? So you've got sales teams that are out there knocking down doors and, mm -hmm. and bringing in the business, but then you have the folks that, you know, they're selling themselves to do the work. Like, what do you mm -hmm. say to them when they say, I don't really like the sales smarmy reputation of slick asking, begging, what have you, I like doing the work, but yet yeah. you really need to also generate the business well if you like doing the work and we need to find a way to make sure you have work to do correct there's no way around that like that's the thing that has to happen right and so like so mark my trademark is rethink the way you sell 
and the rethink the, the pillars of rethink the way you sell are remind yourself what needs to be done. That's your process. This is this is static. This is these are the things that have to happen. Underneath your process are your methods. You can do it any way you want, so long as the job gets done. Right? I, I I'll take a quick sidestep here because you've got kids. How many times have you told your kid that they need to clean their room? <laughs> they clean their room, and then you go back in and you're like. I said, you had to clean your room. They said, I did. I'm like, no, no, no. As a matter of fact, I saw you do it. What I'm telling you though, is that it still needs to be cleaned. So like, I'm not telling you, I'm not calling you a liar. What I'm telling you is that what you did didn't get the job done. So do it again or do it better or do it a different way. So you have your process, which is what has to happen. You have your methods underneath that, which is let's figure out a way for you to get it done. And then the third pillar of rethink the way you sell is belief. So now that you know what you need to do or how you need to do it, now it's time to iterate, implement, put it into play. Maybe in where I come in with this process is that's where my coaching and my consultation comes through. It's like, okay, let's break down the tape. What happened? How did it go? You know, what did you miss? What did you do really well? I mean, that right. So it's, it's understand what needs to happen, find your best way to do it, and then believe that you can. For some entrepreneurs, it's outsource your sales process. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, the box that needs to be checked is I need leads. I need, I don't even just need leads. I need opportunities. I need customers. Mm -hmm. When you're bootstrapping and you're just getting started and you're a solopreneur, you have to figure out a way to do that on your own. Um, at some point, if you get big enough, maybe you can hire it out. But if you're not willing to learn those skills, it's going to be really hard to own a business. You know, the biggest thing, and, and Mark, for me, selling's not a problem. Marketing, which includes product creation and development, and you know, let alone all the stuff we see in terms of digital and who are you talking to and what are you saying and all those other things. There's so much of that backend stuff that I never had to be responsible uh, responsible for before. That was the stuff that I had to learn that I had to get comfortable with. And I'm still working on that stuff. But what you find is a, as a business owner is being good isn't good enough. Right. You can be the best tax accountant in the world. If nobody knows that you're, you know, your, your little office is open there in the strip mall, like they're not just going to be walking in one day and say, you know what? I think I need a tax accountant and because of A, B, and C, and I'll bet this guy can, can take care of me. That's not, that's not how it works. So you have to be willing to speak at a high level about the problems that you solve, about the way that you're different, and about the way that you help. And you have to be willing to put that messaging in front of people. So when you talk to the solopreneur who's like, well, I don't feel good about selling... Mark, this may come as a surprise to you, but I'm going to go back to what is your why? Right. Why do you believe in the company you decided to start? There was clearly a problem in the industry. Here's the asterisk to that. If the problem was I'm just a bad egg and I don't like working with or for other people, <laughs> it's not always the right foot to start off on. Right? It's not always going to work. But if you believe that you do, you do something different, you 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 – you have a different approach, you have a different method, you have something that is going to be valuable to the people you serve, then let's talk about that. 
And not only writing it down on paper and having it sit there in black and white or blue and white or whatever, you know, for you to see, but there's some passion and enthusiasm that gets riled up when you start to write in this way. Mm. And so why do you believe in, you know, what it is that you sell, what the solution that you need? Well, I'm an, I'm an accountant and everybody needs to get their taxes filed. Okay, great. But what is it about what you do and the way that you do it? That means that it's a, a better alternative. Or why is the difference between the way you do it and the way that insert big name of, you know, big tax preparation company, you know, does it? Well, I, this, this is this. Okay, cool. Now we're already getting into why is your customer better off? And then why do you believe in yourself? Why, why was it so, why did you believe that you could open this office? You could open this business and not go bankrupt. Okay. Well, so now we have all this here. What are we going to do with this now? <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's a, it's kind of a Socratic, but very um, pragmatic, certainly, way of looking at the problem that needs to be solved. Mark, if you tell me you don't want to sell, I'm going to tell you you don't have to sell. But I will remind you that someone in your business needs to make sales. Let's put our thinking caps on and figure out how to solve this problem. There's two smart people in this room right now and a bunch of smart people listening. So how, how, do, we, how do we solve this problem? You may resort to the fact that the only solution is you better learn how to sell. <laughs> right, right. Or you're outsourcing it. But if you if you do, what, what about the person who, I won't say innately is good at selling, but has that panache, that has that it factor, but has no process? What do you say to that person? Well, I'll say two things. One, why does selling require panache and the it factor? That's a conversation for another, like, like so many people don't identify with salespeople because they don't have that. You know how great, like there are so many fantastic, incredible, like game-changing world-class salespeople who are introverts Yeah, because they know how to make that work for them because they pay attention because they ask great questions because they listen Be as a crutch. I'm an introvert, Mark. I can turn it on when I need to, but I am wiped out when I do that but I would rather wind you up and let you go one. Cause it makes, it gives me something to work with, which is all I'm asking for. I love being reactive in the moment. And two, I also know that it makes you feel good to talk about yourself. So it's really a win-win from the beginning, but we'll put that aside. You got me really thinking about, you know, the, the mindset of sales and and who defines a good salesperson and you really kind of flipped the script on me and it's <laughs> and it's so important because you know we hear it over and over again with the seller doers we we hear the I, I just I'm not comfortable doing this or I'm not comfortable doing that we need to simply find a new way for you to show your value and to ask the questions and to get in front of those people where you're not fatigued and you're not so uncomfortable that you're paralyzed and you're not going to do it. Right. And there's a way like smart people will find ways to do that. And, and I mean, that leads to your process part. Like everybody has a process, whether you know it or not. Mm. Um, if it doesn't feel like you have a process, well, it might mean that you just don't have a consistent process, but from one step to another, something happens in a sales call. And the only, the only way you don't have a process is if you've never completed a sale. If you've made a sale at some point, you have a process. Um, sometimes, 
now many people need to have it a little bit more defined for them. And I think there's a difference between a process, a methodology, and a playbook, which they often get used interchangeably, right? The process, these are the things that need to happen. The methods, those are your ways to choose about to go about making those things happen. And your playbook, I like to think of a playbook as a menu because I like to have um, I like to have some some bandwidth. I like to keep things fresh. I like to sometimes sometimes I'm a little more outgoing. Sometimes I'm a little more assertive. Sometimes I play it a little calm. Sometimes it's just for me to stay interested and engaged in what I do. I don't want it to be robotic because as soon as I'm robotic, I will be replaced by robots. Right. And I just I don't believe that I can be effective if I can be if what I am doing is so effective, it can't be replaced by a robot which means that I shouldn't put myself in a position where everything I do is so repeatable to begin with. So the playbook allows me to, it gives me several options that I'm comfortable with to implement inside my methodology that is going to accomplish the goal of the process. If that makes sense. I need like a whiteboard and, you know, uh, some, some dry erase markers here to go through that. But I think there's a hierarchy there. And those, those, those terms get used interchangeably and they're not, they're not synonymous with one another. So you have a process as long as you've completed a sale. Now let's dig into what that looks like. And I think the process itself has four steps. You need to one, identify who you can help. Two, get their attention. Three, communicate your value. And four, ask for next steps. That's it. And sometimes the next step is to get their attention, to have another meeting. Sometimes it's, Mark, I like what we talked about today. We should talk some more. How's next week? Okay, great. That's a, Now we have a bit of a loop between step four and step two there. But when you identify the market you can serve, that's first and foremost, the most important. Second, you get their attention. That Under the step two, that's where all the prospecting efforts go. And I define attention by, I have time on your calendar. Right. You know, we got each other's attention when we put time on our calendar to record this interview. Three, you communicate your value. That doesn't always mean listening to a big part of communication. Two ears, one mouth, simple math. But like understanding the dance of the sales conversation, what most people think of as a sales process, in my mind, happens between step two and step three of the process. It's getting the attention, getting the meetings. Too often it devolves into just pitching and arguing. When instead it should be asking questions, uncovering needs, making recommendations. When you've earned the right to ask the questions you need to ask, you've usually earned the right to make a recommendation about how they go and solve their problem. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you're recommending that they go with your solution because that's really what your job is. Um, but sometimes the best sales reps will recommend someone else's solution because it's the best thing for their prospect. And then ultimately, you know, that, that last step closing the deal, you're either closing for a next step or you're closing for a signature. Right. And it's not any more complicated than that. I know some companies have a 17 step cadence for acquiring a meeting. And then they have, you know, every, every uh, slide in their deck pre-scripted, you know, to hit some high point here, or, you know, uh, 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 preemptively, pre- you know, um, prevent an objection here. I mean, right. those aren't steps in a process. Those are um, different tricks in a methodology. 
Mm. And I choose to simplify this stuff because one, because I think people think it's more complicated than it than it actually is. It's really not that it's it's not that tricky. Um, secondly, it allows me to just genuinely show up and have a conversation. What are we trying to do here, Mark? Right. Look, you you agree to this meeting because I made you think about something. I made you think about something. What do you think? Where are we? Let's get started there. Right. What do you think? Where are you stuck? What have you tried? What would it mean to you to, to fix this problem? How much is not having a solution costing you? Mm. You thought about that? I, you don't have to give me exact numbers. You don't have to tell, you don't even have to answer that question audibly. I just want you to think for yourself, what's it costing you? Right. And is this a problem we're solving now? Or is this just something you enjoy thinking about? And like, we can have that conversation. If I have that conversation with 10 people like you on the same day, no two of those conversations will sound alike. Right. And that's the uniqueness of this whole thing. What I love what you said there in the, in the four steps is we're closing for a signature or an order, right? We're closing for the order or we're closing yep. for next steps. We're not closing the book yet though, right? right? Because we probably haven't had enough connections to gain that trust, to show that value, to make uh, that prospect turn into something more than a prospect. Yeah, I mean, when, when you do what you do, considering the the value of what you bring to the table as a as a a, a title attorney, all the background work, the the just the size of the projects and the the value of the projects you work on, like you're providing a service. But, you know, given the arena that you're working in, people are not quick to just switch. It's, they're not just going to say, yeah, sure, you can have all my business now. Right. Like, well, wait a second. Everybody has their processes, their systems. And quite frankly, it's safer to not do anything at all. You know, your biggest competitor is the status quo. They don't have a name. They're this big, blobby, nebulous entity that just keeps people static. You have to give them a reason to change. You have to compel them to to believe that there is something better for them than what they're working with now, and that it's going to be easier for them to achieve than they think. Because the status quo is nice and safe and warm, and it usually doesn't cost that much. Mm. But learning curves feel more expensive than they actually are. That's really interesting. Let me ask you this. So, so you do some, you do training, uh, mm -hmm. you do a lot of things. I, I saw your podcast on there and we'll, we'll, we'll link to that as well. I love that Thanks. they're averaging around 12 or 13 minutes. I love yeah. that. Um, and Thomas will link to those for, for folks. And I encourage you to subscribe and to ring the bell and follow this guy because he's, Thank you. he's full of gold. Um, but Somebody works with you, maybe it's a sales team, maybe it's a founder, leader of an organization, and, and they engage your services and and the journey is on with the sales folks. And they want to sit down and they want to go to the Google machine and, and they want to sing Jeff's praises. What is that? What does that sound like? Jeff made things simple for me and encouraged me to and enabled me to sell in a way that I feel really good about. Um, when I've asked my clients this question, they're like, what well, you take what are normally really complex concepts and you make them easy for me. And then I go do things that I didn't think I could do before. 
because I saw them from a different angle. That that's what my my best clients tell me, and that lights me up. I mean, the the reason I do what I do is the uh, the light bulb moment where you, you just someone perks up and it's like, oh my gosh, I've never thought about it this way before, and now that I do, I think I can do it. Aha. Uh -huh. I, I had that moment myself, you know, and it changed my life. It changed my life. When I stopped seeing sales as something you do to someone, when I, when I stopped thinking about it in terms of like, how do I take what's theirs? How do I separate these people from their money? And when I saw it as a really creative in, you know, a, a creative and really um, engaging way to help people solve problems. That's all I want to do. I mean, I, quite frankly, I do too much of it for free. <laughs> <laughs> At them versus the collaboration, right? You're helping yeah. them. I, I, I love that. It's very visual as well. Um, well, you obviously do a lot of things that are outside the comfort zone. You're teaching people comfort zone, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think I heard mm -hmm. you actually say that get comfortable being uncomfortable and expand your comfort zone. One of the things we love, the icebreaker of all icebreakers, and we're hopefully going to bring all of the mm. guests from Elements of Styles together, and it will be on tap, is karaoke. Jeff mm. Bajorek, you're next on the mic. What are you singing? Do I have to call my shot? Like, There's so many. Um, really? So are you a karaoke enthusiast? Is this a guilty pleasure of yours? No, I haven't done it in a long time. But you've done it. I've done it. I I don't successfully. I, like, yeah, I'm. I can carry a tune. I'm. I'm All not right. gonna. I'm not gonna win any awards. I would say, okay, my my stretch. Like if I'm feeling good and my voice is in good shape, I would go hard to handle by the Black Crows. Ooh, I like it. It's there's just enough range there that it sounds impressive, but it's really not a tough register for okay. me. Okay. Okay. Um, and. You know, I, I could go uh, Stone Temple Pilots plush. Mm. I mean, that's a low enough register. No one's impressed by Scott Weiland's voice, so I can pull that off. There you go. Um, there you but go. yeah, I mean, I think that's, I'm not like a doo-wop guy. I'm not doing anything, you know, really fancy. I don't, I'm not a great singer, but I, I hold my own. I love it. I love it. Well, I think great singers actually ruin karaoke, quite frankly. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> they're no fun show it's off no fun. exactly you're you're <laughs> boasting you're boasting you're not you're not pushing your comfort zone you've you you were on you were in theater like come on right <laughs> you're right hey, the, the best the, the best part about karaoke is that awkward just tension i it's agree like, who handles it who plays it off who just like who can laugh at themselves who laughs it off but also yeah. you know what i love about karaoke is the is the community the oxytocin of someone's doing it for the first time and everyone's getting up there good bad or indifferent they're cheering them on they're singing with them and they're bringing them in and that that's where i think the the rubber hits the road with karaoke and that that good vibe for sure for sure hey most important question of all. Now you've got a lot on your platform. I went on mm -hmm. on your site and you're doing a lot of stuff. What's the best way for people to connect with you if they want to connect or maybe work with you? Um, LinkedIn at Jeff Bajoric on LinkedIn or send me an email, jb at jeffbajoric.com. At Jeff Bajoric. And then jeffbajoric.com is where I saw all of your various in sundry value added items. 
there, the resource library is there. Um, there's a link to my community, which is kind of under reconstruction right now. I'm launching that with some additional courses and things there, but, um, and, and the website's always a work in progress. I mean, it's up, it's functional. There aren't like construction tape, there isn't construction tape all over it, but, um, that's always, a. As as my offerings continue to evolve, I'm always wondering about what the best messaging is there. But um, LinkedIn, and I always link to my podcast on LinkedIn, so you can find my podcast uh, wherever you want. And what's uh, that yeah. called? It's called Rethink the Way You Sell. Ah, so that's the whole brand, the entire yeah. brand. Rethink the way you sell. And I see two books behind you too. What are the titles of those books? Yeah, so a few years ago, I wrote the Five Forgotten Fundamentals of Prospecting, and then uh, the pandemic encouraged the the next one, which is rethink the way you sell when it goes sideways. When it goes sideways, well, it does go sideways, but rethinking is always good. Iterating is always good. Well, remind yourself what you know to be true, and um, really just kind of ground yourself in what you need to do instead of getting caught up in the emotion of it all. I love it. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your skills, your question techniques, all of what you have to offer. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. This was a blast, Mark. Thanks. I love it. I love it. Folks, this has been another amazing episode of Elements of Styles. If you enjoyed this, please share it with everyone and anyone, and we will talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Securitidal. Securitidal helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Securitidal, S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I-T-L-E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.